Welcome to the St. Matt's 6 p.m. podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. We're privileged today to have with us on the podcast Neville Naden. Neville is speaking on the topic of race in our nation to finish our ethnos series, and he's speaking from Acts chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. Verses 1 to 8. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Folks, since colonisation in 1788, the church and the message of the gospel had struggled to find a place of acceptance amongst the First Nations people of our country. And this was due to several factors. The first being that of the late arrival of the Christian influence in the new colony. It was not until 1821 that the first missionaries arrived on these shores. Samuel Marsden, the first chaplain to the colony, had concluded that the Aboriginal people were yet beyond the power of Christ to save. John Harris, in his book One Blood, and it's a great read if you can get your hands on it. Actually, you can actually get it as a, um, as a Kindle book. Um, he says this, in 1819, two years before the first missionaries arrived, the Reverend Samuel Marsden, senior chaplain of New South Wales, had concluded that the Aboriginal people were as yet beyond the power of Christ to save. The Aborigines are the most degraded of the human race. The time has not yet arrived for them to receive the great blessings of civilization and the knowledge of Christianity. There are many other examples of such attitudes. Harris says the greatest challenge for the gospel's effectiveness was the widespread belief among Christians that Aboriginal people were subhuman. The first missionaries grappled with the idea that Aboriginal people of this land may have been subhuman, therefore an inferior race to the newcomers to the colony, even the missionaries themselves. This prevailing attitude was seen in the way some of the missionaries engaged. Another who showed the same perception was a congregational missionary, Lancelot Threckled, in 1853. And this is what he had to say, and I quote, It was maintained by many of the colony that the blacks had no language at all, but were only a race of a monkey tribe. 
this was a covenant, uh, sorry, this was a convenient assumption. For if it was proved that the Aborigines were only a species of wild beasts, there could be no guilt attributed to those who shot them or poisoned them. Can I say that I'm not here uh, this evening to make anyone feel bad about the past, nor am I here to invoke any type of feeling. I'm here as your brother in Christ, who has reflected on the church's contact with Indigenous people. The church did not always do things right. And while there were occasions of setbacks and occasions when missionaries thought that their work was failing despite the missionaries' attitude towards Indigenous people of this land, God was still doing his work of calling out from them a people for himself. Over the past 230-odd years, the church has made good progress in reaching the First Nations people of this country. There is quite a bit of work still to be done, and we are to continue to labour to do it. Once they determined that we are all of one blood, the church began to work in reaching people with the gospel. The prevailing attitudes of the early missionaries hindered the work. However, once they got over their racist views, they became more effective. It is interesting that at the close of Matthew's gospel, after his resurrection, our Lord told his disciples that they were to go into all the world and make disciples. Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. God had in mind to have a relationship with his created humanity. So after his death and resurrection, Jesus spoke to his disciples and told them what they must do. And they were to do four things. They were to go. They were to make. They were to baptise and they were to teach people about himself and how they were to understand him and have a relationship with him. In Mark's Gospel, we have the scope of the work that they were being called to do. Mark 16:15 says this, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. God had a worldview of a church that was multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic, that was called from the throngs of humanity. But how was this going to be achieved? When Jesus said to his disciples, go and do these things, how were they going to do it? What was the plan of evangelising the world? Well, that's where we come to Acts chapter 1. Keeping in mind that God wanted to have a relationship with people. So what did he do? Well, when we read the first few verses of Acts chapter 1, we find Luke giving an account to Theophilus. And the question that beckons then, and who is this Theophilus? And when we turn to Luke's gospel, we have these words. Luke chapter 1 says this, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative 
of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And so, again, the question is, who is this Theophilus and what relationship did he have with Luke? Friends, I believe that Theophilus was a wealthy person who owned slaves and Luke was one such slave. Now, you might say, well, how can Luke be a slave? He was a doctor for crying out loud. Well, folks, Luke lived in a time where people such as himself did not earn enough money to provide for themselves. Therefore, they worked for other people. In this case, Luke worked for Theophilus. Hence the reason he referred to him as most excellent Theophilus. Luke wrote his first account, which, he, uh, which we have in the Gospel of Luke, and then he penned the book of Acts. And note what he says. He says, in my former account I made, the former account, which is the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now note a couple of things in this part of our text. Note the words infallible proofs. From that time, or from the time that Jesus rose from the dead, prior to his ascension, he showed himself to his disciples. This was over a period of 40, 40 days, Luke tells us. Jesus' resurrection takes place the day after the Sabbath day. So from the Sabbath day until the Feast of Pentecost was 50 days. But we have recorded for us a time when Jesus ascended into heaven. However, for a period of 40 days prior to that, Jesus appears and then disappears, showing himself to the disciples. Why did Luke use such words as infallible proofs? If Jesus showed himself alive to one person, those who doubted could have accused him of telling a furphy. But he did not. Jesus showed himself alive to the disciples and others. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, then to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He ate food with them. He walked with them. He appeared and then disappeared. He told Thomas to touch him. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says the following words. He says, For what I received I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Note these ones. If you've got a pen, put an underline in your Bible. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, 
And last of all, he appeared to me also as a one abnormally born. It's interesting that when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, a lot of the people that had seen the resurrected Christ were still living and they were still around so they could testify of the Lord. Some years ago, as a young man, I reckon I was probably 23 years of age, I picked up a couple of books um, by a guy by the name of Josh McDowell. Anyone read Josh McDowell stuff? Yeah, and one of those books was Evidence to Demand a Verdict. Josh McDowell was a lawyer and he set out to prove that Jesus was a, uh, you know, a non-event or, you know, someone who's, who's mythical and uh, wasn't actually Christ, but uh, he was just a man. And through the whole process of trying to gauge whether or not Jesus was who he says he was. Josh McDowell became converted. He actually turned to faith in Christ. And then he went on to write another book, More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And then another book, More Than a Carpenter. They're great reads if you want to get a good read that substantiates the existence of Christ and who he was. Josh McDowell is certainly the man to have a look at. Friends, from the time of his resurrection and the account that we read about in the book of Acts. 40 days have passed. More than 500 people have seen the resurrected Lord. The proof of his resurrection was substantiated by those who had seen him. This was no hoax. He had indeed risen. As we read on in our text, we find the following words in verses 4 to 8. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at that time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Friends, the Jews looked for a time when they would be brought out from under Roman rule and Roman oppression and that they would be given back to them, the areas that Rome came in and occupied. And note what he says to them. He says, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Folks, you notice the blueprint there for mission? In Matthew chapter 28, in Mark chapter 16, he tells them that the, the disciples that they had to go into all the world. And now he has a plan as to how he wants to do it. He has a plan to actually um, unpack and unfold this going out. Now, there's debate over whether or not this plan is prescriptive or whether or not it's descriptive. And what is meant by that is, is Luke prescribing something that should take place or is he describing something that's taken place? Um, Quite frankly, I don't care. At the end of the day, the gospel was going to move across the face of the earth And God was going to reach people with his grace. 
Was Jesus prescribing the way in which the gospel was to be rolled out? Or was Luke describing how it was rolled out? It started in Jerusalem. You notice that in your Bibles? It started on home turf. My friends, too often we see mission and ministry in other locations. BCA is committed to going the distance in this country that people in this country will be will have the opportunity to hear the gospel proclaimed and respond to the call to its call upon their lives. And so the plan was that the gospel was to be preached in Jerusalem. But what about Judea and Samaria? Well, Judea was a name given by the Romans of the places where Jewish people lived. This is a little like me living in Ashtonfield, East Maitland. Ashtonfield is in East Maitland. East Maitland is in the Hunter region of New South Wales. So to apply the principle used here, you would say that you are to do ministry in West Pennant Hills and then Pennant Hills as a whole and then in the upper north shore of Sydney. Now, the jury's still out on what that means and look like. But you are to do ministry in that way. The principle for evangelism starts at home. Starts at home. Right where you are. The priority should be given to where you are and where you work out from. In the disciples' case, they were to start in Jerusalem. When occasions permitted, they were then to speak of Jesus in other areas. Sometimes we get it wrong, don't we? We want to evangelise the world. We focus all our attention on ministry in other locations and we tend to neglect where we are at. I have known some people who have been given ministry in a particular location, but they are hardly ever there. They want to go out and they want to proclaim. They get so passionate about the gospel being proclaimed and they'll travel all over the place to do ministry. Jesus says to his disciples that their ministry should take place where they are, Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the utmost parts of the world. Now, in saying that, we are to reach all people with the gospel. For the gospel is available to all who would believe, regardless of race, of colour, of creed. Friends, last, this week, the Anglican Church in the Sydney Diocese moved to support the election of Kanishka Raphael. I know Kanishka personally. We've done some ministry together. He's a great guy. But what worries me to some degree, and I know I shouldn't be worried about this, is that his election was based upon the colour of his skin. Can I tell you that I don't believe that that's the case at all? I believe that Kanishka is a God-fearing, compassionate, gospel-upholding uh, person one who wants to see the proclamation of the gospel go out to all nations of the world. 
the good news that God wants us is to, that we should have a relationship with him. He wants to have a relationship with his created humanity. And that should drive us to set aside our indifferences, should it not? Yeah. God's church is one that is all-inclusive. There is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free. God's church, when it comes to salvation, there is equality. My friends, the church is multicultural, the church is multilingual, and the church is multi-ethnic. The words that you get, this Greek word, ethnos. And sometimes we struggle to share the gospel outside our own comfort zones, don't we? Well, let me ask you the question. When was the last time you spoke to someone about Jesus who doesn't come along to this church? Because at the end of the day, that's where the rubber meets the road. If we, if, if we believe that God wants to have a relationship with people out there in that community, then we have a responsibility, do we not? To go out and to share with them the love of God. Well, you folk have been in a series on running the race. You've considered the race in our world. And I think last week you would have considered the race in our hearts. And today we have considered the race in this nation. And whilst it started off and struggled initially, God is wonderfully calling a people out from the First Nations people. God is wonderfully calling a people out from the throngs of people who live in this country. 28, 29 million? Yeah. He wants to have a relationship with those people. And so you and I have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to be able to share our faith with other people in order that they might come into this relationship with God and become a part of his family. And so I want to encourage you this evening. Sure, we can come along to church and, you know, holy huddled and Christian cuddled and all of that, and that's good. But at the end of the day, God wants his people to be mobilised, to do mission. He wants them to be out there and to share this gospel of good news. And we, as those who have come to understand his love for us and that we are saved not by anything that we have done, but but by his grace in calling us to himself. Surely that should drive us to go out to the highways and byways and share that wonderful love and compassion that Jesus has for his created humanity. Friends, let me say, Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, outlines both what it is that the disciples were called to do. Luke outlines what the process would be, the blueprint for how this should be done. So let me encourage you. Hey, do work in your home backyard. More importantly, have it a little bit closer. Do work in your own family. Train up a child in the way you should go. When they get older, they will not depart from it. That's a promise. And that's what we need to be doing. Our race 
starts where we are, in our Jerusalem. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have the privilege of being called your children. We thank you that from the throngs of humanity in this country, you have called us to have a relationship with you. And Father, how privileged we are. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you'll give us a heart for those who live in our community, that when opportunities arise, that we might speak a word for you, that we might be challenged and bold enough, Father, to speak out for you. Strengthen us, I pray, that we might see many people from every walk of life, from every ethnic background, from every language, tongue and tribe. Father, in order that the church this side of heaven might reflect the church on the other side. Father, that we might all live to the praise and glory of yourself. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmatts.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon. Thank you.